there were two men, and they were wandering through a city. And uh, one lived in the city. He was a city dweller. He lived all his life in this busy, cosmopolitan um, extravaganza of sounds and sights. There There were cars everywhere. There was noise everywhere. People on every pavement, a little bit like the centre of London. But the man with him, they were friends, he was from the countryside. He lived in the quiet. He was used to quiet, not the noise and the bustle and the hustle. As they wandered along the street with sirens sounding, etc., etc., the man from the country stopped by a tree. And he pointed up into the tree and he said to the man from the city, Can you hear it? Hear what? said the man from the city. The man from the country said, well, can you hear the cricket singing in the tree? The man from the city looked at him and said, you've got to be stupid. There's no cricket singing in a tree in the middle of our city. The crickets would be dead because of the pollution. Forget it, there's no cricket. And even if there was a cricket in the tree, you wouldn't be able to hear it above the din of all the traffic. And he marched. At that moment, he chose to march on. The man from the countryside stood by the tree. And he looked up into the tree again. And then he reached into his pocket. And he took a small coin out. And in the middle of all the din, with his friend now 20 paces down the road, he held the coin high and he dropped it onto the concrete pavement. It rolled round and made that sound that all coins, when they're dropped, make. And as it hit the ground, 50 people turned round and stared at the point where the the, the coin had landed, including his friend. The man from the countryside said, in life, it all depends what you're listening for. A lot of people hurry through life with lots of hustle and bustle, and they don't make time to stop and listen. Spiritual disciplines are about taking time to stop and listen so that we can encounter life at a deeper level. I guess that you're here this evening. We're all here this evening, aren't we? Because from time to time we hear the call of something that's deeper than the surface noise of life. From time to time, we all hear the call to deeper living. Now, we might not be experiencing it tonight, because it might be that you're here tonight because you come to church on a Sunday evening. You've been asked to, or you're here, because it's your routine and what you do. But actually, in the routine, if we make the time, God can speak to us as well. We've heard the call to get beyond the kind of shallowness of everyday life and to develop a depth. We've caught a glimpse, a hint of something that's deeper. I'd like to show you a slide. There it is. My life, your life. Our life, surrounded by the rest of the world. Society. There we are, and it's all out there. And it's our job to contend with all of that. What's missing from that diagram, me and the rest of the world, is this. The inner core of who we are. In life, 
as we all know, there are two journeys that we take simultaneously. One is the external one that consumes so much of our time and energy. It's the external one to do with where we live and how much we earn and what, uh, and, uh, and what our title is and who our friends are and who we hang about with and where we're going on holiday and who we're going to spend next weekend with. It's the external one concerned with what we drive. It's the external one concerned with status, how people, how people see us, what we look like, what clothes we wear. It's the external one that consumes us about what fridge we have and what microwave oven we have and all of those things that take up our time. But equally alongside it goes an internal journey. And each of us takes that journey. It's not a case of whether we choose to take it or not. We do take it. Each of us gets a spiritual formation. The only question is, is it truncated and malnourished or not? The external journey is to do with our relationship with the outer world. The internal journey is to do with our relationship with ourselves. And whether we're Christians or not, followers of Jesus or not, all of us need to take that journey. And just like for the journey that's external, discipline helps. So um, on Saturday mornings, normally, I didn't this Saturday morning, I go running on that park run thing. Uh, you know, there are park runs around the country, and I go right down to Burgess Park, and I, you have to arrive by 9 o'clock, and you do your 5K, and you're never actually content with it, well, if you're me, you're never content with the time you get, and you always want to go faster. But the fact that you turn up and you do it, the discipline of doing it, even when you're miserable at the end because you didn't go fast enough and you sweated too much and you were too slow and you felt like giving up halfway round, which I always do, uh, the very fact of doing it is actually the discipline that keeps you fit or something approaching fit. We need disciplines in life. We accept disciplines in life. And what the Bible is clear about is that we need disciplines to encourage our spiritual life as well. So people moan sometimes, we all tend to moan, about the fact that we feel spiritually dead. Well, that's the point not to give up. That's the point to work hard. Just like when you feel giving up, like giving up with your physical exercise, you keep going. At that point, in terms of our spiritual life, we need to keep going as well. What are spiritual disciplines? Well, there isn't a definitive list. It's like asking, what are physical disciplines or physical exercises? There's not a definitive list. You talk to everyone and they talk to you about what they do to keep fit. They row or they run or they swim or they walk or they lift weights or they... they do aerobics, etc., etc. There's all sorts of things you can do to keep fit, and I don't suppose that anybody ever has collected together the whole definitive list. There's always a new innovative way of doing this. So when we talk about spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, what are we talking about? There is no definitive list. But rather... It's a case of asking ourselves, what were the things that Jesus did in order to keep himself in the right place spiritually and in terms of his vocation and commission? 
He found time to be alone. He found time to worship. He spent time in prayer. He fasted. He gave to others. He served others. All of these become disciplines that we, as we commit to them, are going to find that uh, we grow. If these were things that Jesus did, and down through the rich history of the church, these, through the centuries, these are things that people have taken seriously. We do well to take them seriously as well. Now, when I think about spiritual practices... The first response I've got is to feel really, I'm just talking about me, I feel really guilty about the fact that I haven't read the Bible all the way through in the last six months. Do you know, that's kind of the, the, you know, the test. Have you ever read the Bible all the way through? Have you read it through in the last six months? Have you read a chapter a day? Do you read the Bible every day of the week? Do you read it and contemplate on it? Is it meaningful to you? All of those questions are just designed to induce guilt in us, aren't they? Yeah? Unless anybody here wants to say, yeah, I've got this thing going down and it's really working for me all of the time. I've spent half my life, most of my life, actually not half my life, I've spent most of my life wrestling with reading the Bible, wrestling with prayer. I've tried praying in the morning, I've tried praying in the evening, I've tried sitting quietly when I first get up without getting my head filled with all the emails I've got to send. I've, I've spent time trying to sit quietly at last thing at night and think and contemplate and pray without falling straight to sleep. I've tried reading slowly. I've tried reading Bible verses in a repetitive way. I've tried reading whole chapters. I've tried everything and mostly failed at absolutely everything. But the truth is, even in the struggle, you grow and you learn. Just as in the struggle of running, you might run half as slow as you want to and half as far as you want to, or whatever it might be that you do as a discipline, but actually you're growing through that even though it feels like a struggle. If my initial response is to feel like I want to give up on these things, my second response is different. In life, this is just me, you may be like this, I then take up the challenge and I set an overambitious target. I will read the whole of Mark's Gospel before Friday. I do that with physical exercise as well. I'm going to go out this morning and run a half marathon. I run two and a half miles and then feel like I've got to stop and feel an immense amount of guilt. So I oscillate between feeling guilty and setting targets that can't possibly be met. Which leads me to my third response. And my third response is to give up on the whole project as absolutely useless. But in all of those human emotions and amongst those human emotions, it makes sense to keep working at spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are not a straitjacket. Spiritual disciplines aren't put there uh, as a piece of legalism. They're there for our growth. Um, Years and years and years ago, before I started Oasis, and before I knew any of you here, when I was in my 20s, I worked for a church. When Connie and I first got married, I worked for a church in a place called Tunbridge in Kent. And every Monday, I had to go and visit two elderly ladies. One was called Mrs. Blackburn. She's long since dead. 
Nora Blackburn, and the other one, well, I won't tell you her name. Nora Blackburn was a joy to go and see. She was shut in. She couldn't walk, even with a Zimmer frame. And every Monday afternoon, I had to go and take her the tape, because that's what it was then, you know, a cassette tape of the service from the day before. And I'd sit and have a cup of tea with her, and she'd thank me for taking the tape round, and she'd tell me she'd been praying for me, and she'd give me back the one from the week before, and tell me how good she found it. Sometimes she didn't agree with it. Sometimes she said, I think he's missed the point when it was me preaching or one of the other guys preaching, but she was always a joy to be with, even if she corrected you. And then I used to go to see the other lady, She'd also been a member of the church I worked for for about 50 years. Both of them had been, and they were both shut in. And the second lady I'd go and see, and I'd knock on the door, and I'd dread it. I really would dread it, honestly. Because no sooner had I got in that door than she'd be moaning. She'd be moaning about what was on the tape from the week before. She'd be moaning about the hymns and the prayers and the way the Bible was read and most of all the sermon. She'd moan about the town we lived in. She'd moan about the street she lived in. She'd moan about her relatives who never ever came to see her. I could understand why. She'd moan about absolutely everything and I'd wander back up her garden path after about an hour thoroughly depressed. And it took me a while to work out what this was all about. What it's all about is this. What you do as a habit in your early years shows in your life in your late years. It works that way every way, doesn't it? You look at somebody who's older and done a lot of physical exercise and actually you think, well, they've held themselves together okay. The time they put in and invest actually shows. Does that make sense? You know that. Spiritually, the same thing happens. You can't get away with it. There's no shortcut. What you invest in, you become. If you keep practicing hospitality, a spiritual practice, if you keep practicing generosity, a spiritual practice, if you keep practicing prayer and listening, spiritual practices, actually, slowly, those things, though hard and you always feel you're struggling and failing, you become them. At your core, you develop on your inner journey. Um, here's Dave sat there and he's seen this picture of this tree more often than he can possibly imagine and I guess you've seen it before as well oh you did did you yeah you were here yeah I I do Marianne hey you're giving it all away now Marianne thanks (laughs) no you haven't you haven't given away you've just given away that you've seen this tree before yeah yeah you are honest. There you are. That's, that's pretty good. This tree, I'd like you, you may have not seen this before. Marianne has seen it before. I'd like you to take a look at this tree and just contemplate it for a moment or two. What do you notice about it? Think about it. 
What else do you notice about it? How deep the roots go. The roots are bigger than leaves. No, that's good. What else? Is there, are there other things you see? How healthy the tree is. I'm told that this is what any healthy tree looks like. There's a lot more of it below the ground than above the ground. As Terry said, the roots are bigger than the tree. But here's the point. Are the roots bigger than the tree? No, they're not. The roots are the tree. We tend to think of the roots as some added-on bit that aren't the real tree. But the real tree is the whole thing. It's just that there's a lot more of the tree beneath the ground than above the ground. And the bit above the ground, (laughs) surrounded by bright blue sky, looks beautiful. It's foliage. You want to take a picture of it. You want to sit in its shade. You want to walk past it on a summer's day. The bit below the ground is unseen, but it's all important. The bit below the ground supplies all the nutrition to the bit above the ground. The bit above the ground will be nothing more than a collection of dead twigs without the bit beneath the ground. But it's more than that. It's more than I can say. In fact, the more you look at this the more significance it has. But it's the extensive nature of the roots beneath the ground that give what is above the ground not only its life, but its strength. When the storm comes, when the rain comes, when the wind hits the tree, it's the roots that anchor the whole thing and keep it steady. Our inner journey, our routine, is highly important. The qu- a question that you would have heard me address on many an occasion, forgive me for saying this to you again, I say it not because I've forgotten I've said it before, but because I have said it before. This, I believe, is at the core of everything that being human is. Here it is. People ask me continually, because I'm a vicar, I suppose, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? They say that one way or the other all the time. It's kind of like, what are they saying? They're saying, do you think I'll get into heaven with that and be able to skip the services as well? If I could only just, you know, one a month I could negotiate. Perhaps I could do once every six weeks. Can I skip those services? Because really I like Sunday mornings to myself or whatever. You know, if I can skip all that, will I still get to heaven? Well, I'll leave you to the answer to that question. But I think, your answer to that question, I would say that Jesus, though he did talk about life beyond death, really focused on life before death. He focused on who we are. And I would say that the question you actually need to ask isn't, do I need to go to church to be a Christian? It is this, in life, wherever you go. What kind of community 
do I need to be truly, really committed to in order to become the kind of person that I long to be? Because sure, are eggs are eggs. I can say to every one of you, and I'm not picking on you, you will never, ever amount to what you could amount to unless you are committed to a real community. You are not, I'm not preaching at you, because I'm preaching at me, I'm speaking about, we are not superstars, we are not lone rangers, we can't do it on our own. We can rationalise that we can do it on our own. You have no idea the number of people I meet who think they're somehow above belonging to community. They, you know, I've travelled beyond, I know now, oh, I haven't got time for ordinary people. I haven't got time to hang about. with. I'm busy, I'm important, I'm doing stuff, I'm changing the nation, shaping the country, shaping uh, life it's only in community that we find ourselves community provides us with the routine system that we need through the disciplines that we develop anyway I'm going to skip that here's a great a quote from the Oxford Dictionary. It's the Oxford Pocket Dictionary. It's, it's the definition of what is discipline. It says, the practice of discipline is the practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behaviour using punishment to correct disobedience. It actually says that in the Oxford Dictionary, I promise. It has some other definitions, but that's the first one. I really, would, you know, if I owned an Oxford Pocket Dictionary, I'd send it back to complain. The word discipline, if we flick back, means to have dedication, commitment, and self-control. It means to learn or train. Discipline, disciple, you should be able to get the clue. It's only in English that we get discipline muddled up with punishment. I'm going to discipline him means I'm going to thump him. I'm going to give her a good whack. They're in trouble. But discipline actually means to train. So developing spiritual disciplines isn't a form of punishment. Prayer, Bible reading, quietness, meditation, giving. Think of all the things you really hate doing and God will make you do them. They're actually ways of liberating ourselves and setting ourselves free. Here's a great quote. A life without boundaries can never become a life that's constructive, created, and life-giving. We know that, don't we, really? In every other area of life, we know that. A life without boundaries, that's why you need to belong to a community, can never be a life that's productive, or fulfilling, or creative, or constructive, life-giving. So a life without boundaries spiritually, and disciplined spiritually, as hard as they are to work through, will never be a life that's productive. Here's a quote from a friend of mine. His name's Jim Wallace. He said this, The great tragedy of modern evangelism, telling people about Jesus, is in calling many people to belief. Believe this, Jesus died for you. You're on your way to heaven if you pray this prayer. But few to obedience. In calling many people to belief but few to obedience. 
So one of the great spiritual disciplines that the church has held down through the centuries to millennia is confession. And when we think of confession, we think of a Catholic priest in one of those stuffy boxes and the priest sits on the other side and you whisper through and you tell him some stuff and he seems to find that helpful and you wander away feeling that, ha, it's been forgiven, I'm absolved, now I can go and do it again. And we think that's what confession is. Confession, however, is something to lift a burden. It's something that makes us whole. David, in the reading that James read to us, uh, King David, most famous Jewish king, he just had an affair with Bathsheba and Nathan, who was a prophet, came and confronted him about it. But instead of covering up on the thing and pretending it didn't happen and making up excuses, which you'll notice, how often, if you switch on the TV or the radio radio tomorrow morning, it's incredible how few people will actually say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. We'll always excuse ourselves, but David says, I was wrong, I was wrong. Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions, against you have I sinned. You are right in your judgment of me. Yet you desire faithfulness from me. You taught me wisdom from the beginning. Cleanse me and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. I know they're there. David has this incredible honesty. I met, um, I know, I should say, not just met, I know a woman who um, told me this story uh, some months ago. Um, she told me this story inadvertently because she was telling me something else. But she told me about her mother. Her mother um, has died now of cancer. But she just discovered that her mother had incurable cancer and was dying. And she was mad with her mother. She'd been mad with her mother all her life. She'd been mad with her mother because her mother had never actually been what she wanted her mother to be. They'd had an awkward and strained relationship. And so she sat down, she said, and she began to pour out her anger at her mother by putting it into a letter. And she told me, she just started writing, and she said, I just kept going for about an hour, kind of on automatic, and all this hatred and anger Uh, flowed out of me. I was so mad with this woman. It just spewed out from me. But she said the more she wrote, wrote, and the more furiously she wrote, what slowly happened was this. She began to think about her own responses. And as she poured out a scorn for her mother, she began to realise that her attitude had not been what it should be. And the way she'd been with her mother as a teenager, when she now realised her mother was under great strain and the demands she'd made were unreasonable and the insults she'd thrown and the lies she'd told and she began to see that actually her mother had stuck with her when everyone else had given up. 
And the more she wrote this down, the more she recognized there was a lot in her that needed to be changed. And when she told me about it, she told me this. As she looked at the letter she'd written, she realized it was a letter of confession. And then she said this, and I try to capture for you exactly what she said. She said, but in looking at this letter, which was a letter of confession about the way I had been, it seemed to open up for me some space to breathe, just because I'd acknowledged it and said it. I had space to breathe. And in that space, she said, I was able to go back to my mum and ask for forgiveness and build a relationship. And in the last months of my mother's life, we enjoyed a relationship such as we'd never had before. Confession is a good thing. Confession is a necessary thing. There are two approaches to getting stuff wrong. One approach is, forget it, no regrets. Lady Macbeth, if you did any Shakespeare, I did Macbeth at school, was what's done is done, that's it. No regrets. Indifference. The problem with that approach is, until we know the bad news about who we are, honestly know the bad news, we can never know the good news. Uh, do, you, do you ever bump into people? I sometimes get asked this question. I don't know if ever, you ever get asked this question. Do you ever get asked the question, have you got any regrets? If you could have the last year over again, would you do anything differently? Do you ever get asked that question, that kind of question? I get, seem to get asked all the time. And I hear other people answer it. I heard somebody answer it just the other week, I suppose it was. And this person said, no, I'd not change a thing. And I always think, that's bizarre. Because if I could live this afternoon again, I'd do it slightly differently. I'd hold the conversation I held this afternoon slightly differently. I'd try to be a little bit other, more other-centered. I'd try to be a bit more focused on what the other person was saying to me. I'd, try, I'd, th- I'd realize that there was that kind comment I could have made if I was smarter and faster that I didn't make and didn't even think of and didn't get the connection until after the moment had gone. Do you know what I mean? To stop and reflect on the mistakes we've made isn't some kind of weakness, it's strength, isn't it? Because I'm learning all the time. When I finish doing this talk, I'll sit down and I'll worry about it. It was far too long for a start. And, uh, you know, and you all look bored through it. And all of those things. And I'll sit there and I go, oh, no, if next time I do that talk, if I ever do a talk like that again, I'll leave this bit out and add this bit and take that bit off and I'll finish there, etc., etc. It's just the way it is. You can't know the good news until you examine the bad news. But then there's the, altern- the, the opposite way of approaching um, mistakes, which is the kind of wallow in it thing. You wallow in it for years. The mistake you made, you get stuck in the moment, in remorse. All the kind of, I would-haves, I should-haves, I could-haves. The burden of regret it hangs over you. And you're still worried about something you said 15 years ago, and you did 15 years ago, and you're stuck in that moment, and you don't know redemption, and you don't know hope. So as I finish, I'm going to suggest something. In your news sheet, there is a blank piece of paper, I hope. 
If you've not got a blank piece of paper or a new sheet, Deeran can supply you with one, or there's some over there. Is there a blank piece of paper in your new sheet? Yeah? And have you got a pen? If you've not got a pen... So confession is a great spiritual practice. It's not a one-off, it's an ongoing thing. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our mistakes. Forgive us our debts, Jesus says. Forgive us the mistakes and the sins we've committed. And one way of confession that's constructive, that doesn't ignore the bad stuff, It's all okay, what's done is done, no regrets. But doesn't get stuck in the regret. Oh, I'm a terrible person, I can never move on. Is to actually write things down. And I give to you that opportunity now, if you'd like to. I think Flick, in a moment, is going to come and play to us as we get a chance to do this exercise, this reflection, if we choose. An opportunity to stop and to reflect on how we feel about mistakes we've made this week, sins we've committed, perhaps a long time ago, things that haunt us. When you won't look at something, have you noticed how it always hangs there? You did, this happened years ago maybe, this relationship, this action, whatever it might be, it happened years ago and it just hangs there And it hangs there because you're constantly trying to push it away. But the way to deal with it is to acknowledge it and look at it and move on from it. So I'd like you, if you choose to, to write something down. No one's ever going to see this piece of paper except you. So it can be honest and it doesn't have to have great grammar or even decent spelling. It's more about honesty. And you might want to take it away. You might want to work on it for the next few days. So what are you bothered about? What are you guilty about? What do you feel guilty about? What regret do you have about your past actions? What secret? And maybe as you write, you could even make it a two-way letter where you write about your stuff that's bad. And then I'd like you, if you choose to, to think about what a loving God, the God of David would say to you so it could be a little conversation and as you do that perhaps you might like to look at this let me read it to you O Lord my God you know me better than I know myself I am lost without your grace and your reckless love you know my struggles and troubled thoughts I've gone my own way. I'm sorry for my sins. And I choose to confess them and turn away from them. Forgive me the wrong I've done. Cleanse me and change me. By your Holy Spirit, transform me. And enable me to live more holy for you. And perhaps that's the last thing about an act of confession, which should be a regular habit. It's not just to look at your sin and see it for what it is. It's actually to 
see God's forgiveness that comes to you, just as David records in Psalm 51, and then move on from that. How do you change this relationship around? How do you learn from what you've done for the future? What positive, life-enhancing thing can happen? In Psalm 51, David confesses his sin, says he understands God's forgiveness, and then says, and I will teach all those who sin your way. I'll leave you to reflect if you choose to.